Hi everyone, I'm Ben Tapper, and this is Invisible Truths. This is a podcast for anyone who carries burdens that feel too heavy to bear, questions too vulnerable to openly discuss, or pain that you're certain no one else will understand. Even more than that, though, this is a space to acknowledge and explore the invisible truths within each of us. If you're still interested, let's get started. In this week's episode, Melanie and I continue our conversation about embodiment and gender, and we discuss how we can begin to come into a sense of our own power. Take a listen. I think this struggle of disembodiment and discounting of pleasure is present for men as well, though in in different ways sometimes. Having said that, I'm going to focus this next question specifically on women. <laughs> okay, because I was saying, because I like actually where you're going. I have some, I have an answer to a question you haven't asked yet. Go for it. <laughs> if we're going to talk about invisible truths, I'll just answer the invisible. Question. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were talking about, you know, the, the embodiment thing, and I am going to give it a gendered script, but it's going to relate to kind of what you were talking about. Um, you know, if we're looking specifically at Greco-Roman culture and the, the, the binary, the mm-hmm. dualities that are created, in Greco-Roman culture with those dualities, right, we, we have to remember that the intellect has been gendered masculine, right? Yeah. In the same way that humans are gendered, we have gendered symbols, we have, you know, gendered traits and virtues that, you know, uh, you know a lot of languages that, you know, words will have a right. gender, right? And so the intellect was gendered masculine and the body was gendered feminine. Mm. I think that's part of the reason that even when it comes to going to yoga classes, there is something about going to the body in that way. It's like, it's not strength training. It's not about running. It's not a triathlon that people like, okay, that that's somehow for women, right? Because of the expression and experience that the body has in that. Um, And all that to say is, you know, the masculine in patriarchy, it's not just men, but masculinity and masculine values and masculine characteristics and traits that are more highly valued. And the feminine is devalued, if not, right, in religious, especially in Judeo-Christian religions, deemed as evil, source of sin, um, dirty, unclean, all of those things that to go into the body to even value what the body has to teach us is seen as oftentimes weakness, woo, not worthy, not credible, not valid, because it's like, oh, it's not rational. It's not reasonable. Those are all masculine characteristics that we have identified with the intellect. And those are things that we can measure, we can dissect, you know, that we can have quantitative evidence, and we, we deem them to be more important than you know, a lot of the feminine characteristics that any human can have, which is about being intuitive, being compassionate, being kind, that's all seen as weakness. So to go into the body to be embodied, um, I mean, if I go to one extreme, it's kind of seen like that's a dangerous place. Yeah. That's a vulnerable space that can, you know, lead you astray. It can lead you into sin. It can lead you into evil. Um, I mean, if we just go into the fear of the night, fear of women's bodies, fear of sexuality, all of that was essentially the foundation of the witch burnings, right? Mm-hmm. Because the, the women and men and the gay people and the immigrants who were burned at that time were healers um, for the women. Many of them were doulas. They were midwives. 
they were the herbalist, they were the wise women in their communities, and there was just so much suspect around that kind of having that kind of power and where that knowledge came from. That knowledge came from the body, the knowledge came from intuition, the knowledge came from lineage, the knowledge came from truly plants and plant medicine. And all of that was seen as highly suspect and something to be contained, something to be controlled, something that did not have value or worth. And we see that through westward expansion, right? In the United States, it's like we must tame the frontier, we must control, we must conquer. And so to go into the body, unless we're going into the, you know, relating to the body as like my will, my intellect uh, wants me to to lose weight, I want to sculpt, I want to tone, I want to strengthen, I want to be able to do that. That's really the way most people in the larger, definitely North American and many European cultures relate to the body. It's also a very you know, masculine way, whether it's done by a woman or man or gender queer person to identify with the body. When it's like, okay, let's, let's actually begin to deconstruct that. We have to go into the realm of non-duality. We have to go into the realm of fullness. We have to break down gender stereotypes yep. and see these attributes and qualities being available to any human being if we decide to cultivate them. And then understanding then without addressing that, how can we really provide an opportunity for people to go into the embodied experience, right? Mm -hmm. Which is why for me to in wellness and spirituality, communities over the years, it has been a primary focus of mine to like, okay, if we're going to do this kind of work, how can you raise consciousness, become more mindful, become embodied if we're not having conversations right. about patriarchy, racial oppression, colonization, sizeism, ageism, you know, classism, all of those, like they have to be there. And there was a tremendous amount of resistance um, I would say 10 years ago when um, some colleagues and allies of mine started to do that, like we were very much an inconvenience to people in those communities because it was like, oh, you're a hater. It's negativity. It's ruining the vibe. And I was like, no, actually, these are the practices. If we're going to fully connect, if we are going to embody, if we are going to liberate, you have to have those conversations. We have to do the internal and the external simultaneously. Um, so I don't even know what your question was anymore. I think it was about embodiment. Oh, you didn't ask the question. <laughs> I didn't ask the question. Right. You're answering the, the question, question. you heard in your mind. Right. But, but um, making the connection to the, I think, the hesitancy and oftentimes desire to kind of shut down the conversations and intentions in the work around embodiment because um, it's not seen oftentimes as valuable work. It's seen as unnecessary work. And there, it's seen as dangerous. Like that's a dangerous place. Yeah. Our bodies are still, to a certain degree, seen as dangerous. And maybe different for men and women. For some men, they feel like their sexuality is going to be questioned, right? So you know that brings in homophobia as well. It it brings in like, what does it mean to be a man? Yep. So you know, Gavin, uh, you know, who's in, in the Joy Revolution, he just did a mindful masculinity um, workshop recently, which I love. It's like, how do we reimagine masculinity? You know, how, how can we begin to take these tropes and stereotypes and these dualistic structures and begin to recreate them into something that create new possibility for us? Yeah. And so 
Um, you know, I'm all about that work and that experience is going to be very different for every single person, but it is going to require, you know, some pretty um, deep and conscious and critical conversations about the structures and systems that we live in, in addition to the bodies that we live in and the communities that we live in and the relationships that we're a part of. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, part of the deconstructing that, that we have to do, especially uh, people that grew up as uh, cisgender, heterosexual males, um, is that our, our identity, our masculinity was almost um, defined in opposition to something else, in opposition to our body, in opposition to another person. Like we have to dominate, we have to overcome, we have to uh, do all these things. So when you're talking about running, I'm thinking of, you know, cross country in high school. And the message was, you know, when it hurts, when it doesn't feel good, you just push through it, right? Right. Mind over your body. You have to ignore your body and just fight through it. Same with lifting weights. You're, it's almost like you're conquering the weight um, itself. And so there's yeah. this, you, you, you can't, you're defined by what you can overcome, what you are in opposition to. Whereas something like yoga teaches you to really look inward and to accept where you're at to accept whatever limitations you're experiencing, trusting that if you continue the practice, those boundaries will slowly move, right, over time. And as you come deeper into yourself, you will find more power than you realized was actually there to begin with. And so it, it takes a reimagining of, to your point, what it means um, to define our identity, to define our masculinity or our femininity. Oh my God, okay, so <laughs> I love this because I'm like, I already had five other things just from that little tidbit. Like I gave, I gave Ben some space to, to, to talk in my podcast, right? Um, and, and that little piece like really brought up a lot. So you were talking about running and, you know, weightlifting, um, which is a mind over matter, right? So that's that dualism that we just talked about in terms of the intellect as being having more value and worth than the body, right? The masculine over the feminine. It's looking at patriarchal and hierarchical, you know, um, sort of positions of power. And that also relates to the no pain, no gain mentality that is part of our culture, right? And that brings me to another story because, you know, I'm sitting here going, oh my God, like, I, I hope that listeners like stay with us because we, we went into some lofty spaces and I want to anchor it with another story. Yes, okay. Yes. Um, which is my, one of my first yoga teachers who's still an incredible friend and mentor to me now, gosh, at this point, it's 25 years later, wow. uh, Brian Kest. Um, he's an amazing guy. And the first time I landed in his class, I, what I loved about him was not just the practice, but he spoke my language and he spoke to my experience. And Brian actually has a, a contribution in um, Yoga and Body Image, which is uh, one of the first anthologies that I published in 2014. And his particular piece is called Like Father, Like Son. And he is looking at body image and masculinity. It's an amazing, amazing piece. And for him, he had grown up truly emulating superheroes, you know, this was the rise of also fitness culture or workout, uh, I'll say no, weightlifting culture, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, right? Late seventies, early eighties. And uh, so he, um, he wanted to emulate people like that. And his own father, who ended up actually being a huge yogi as well, Rowan Kest, um, was incredibly violent to his family, to others. He said that he would be in the car and if somebody cut him off, he would stop the car, get out and like pull them out of the car, right? Wow. Yeah, it was very intense. So, you know, everything that Brian had learned and 
this is all shared in his essay. I'm not revealing personal details. These are the things that he shared was about what it means to be a man, what, what, what it means to be in a body mm -hmm. that is appropriately masculine. And um, he also, as a result, really got into fitness culture and weightlifting. And in his yoga classes, he, as many of us, you know, we work out our own stuff as we teach and as we lead, we're, we're working things out as well. His rhetoric was what was so powerful. It was all about not comparing and competing. Mm -hmm. It was uh, about like, about challenging ourselves physically, not for the physical part of it, but to, will we mentally respond? So what I mean by that is, he is known as you know the founder of power yoga speaking of power right mm -hmm. and people always are like oh brian your classes are so physically challenging and oh my god it kicked my ass and he's like oh then you weren't actually practicing power yoga mm. because power yoga he's like if i don't give my students something physically challenging on the mat how are they going to practice moderation and forgiveness and empathy if it's just quote easy where, where are they going to have the opportunity to practice responding versus reacting? How are they going to practice taking action on listening, right? And so he would say, if your breathing is being compromised, you should not be in this pose. You should be in child's pose right now, mm. right? Why are you doing another vinyasa? Why are you doing another chaturanga or another push-up? If your arms are shaking and you're pinching your breath, your breath is a barometer of your internal state that is your body signaling to you, you need to take a break. Do you have the power and the strength to take a break? Mm. Okay, so that's what power yoga is, is really about. And so it took me a while, <laughs> a, couple <laughs> of years, a couple of years, I would push through, I would hear him say that. And I love the rhetoric and I love the permission, but I would not do it, yeah. okay? Full disclosure, yeah. I think I started practicing. I started practicing yoga in 1996. Started practicing with Brian in '97, and it probably wasn't until 2000 that I really took a break. Yeah, in my practice, right? Um, but I, I got what he was saying. I just could not get there yet. Mm -hmm. um, and then once I did, I remember there was a period of time where I was practicing with him in class with the same people for years. It was a, an amazing time in the Santa Monica yoga community between about 1999 and about 2006. Um, and so we were, would always be together. Um, and so the same people, six days a week probably. And I finally got to the place where I could give my body a freaking break, okay? Mm -hmm. And I think I spent the next nine months in child's pose. <laughs> like literally nine months where I would start, I would do a couple vinyasa flows, and then I would, you know, end up in child's pose for probably 75% of the lead practice and then go into child's pose. And I was usually crying too, I think at that time. I don't even remember what it was about, but it didn't matter. I was just releasing things from my body. Um, and that was my practice at the time. So nine months I spent on the floor right? Uh, or, or, or in child's pose, sometimes for 30, I'm sorry, in um, uh, Shavasana, our final resting pose, sometimes I would go into that early and spend 30, 40 minutes there. Mm -hmm. And that's when my practice really started, is when I could go there, when I could get on the mat and practice what he had been teaching me for years already, which is when it is difficult, when it is hard, 
how kind are you with yourself? Do you give yourself a break? Do you give yourself space to rest? Do you, you know, can you just be there with that moment? And, um, and, and, and I, I'm in forever grateful for him for giving me the space to, to practice those things and put them into motion. And so uh, I would say around 2000 is when that happened. And that was right around the time I was also um, reading, you know, about love as revolutionary, love as radical, love as the really antithesis of patriarchal domination not as weakness, but actually as incredibly powerful because it was breaking down the dominator model, which is a requirement. So here I'm kind of, you know, tying a lot of the threads that maybe seemed separate, maybe to some folks. So here I'm braiding them all together. They actually all are part of the larger picture of what I experienced. And so um, it, it gave me, you know, greater capacity and room to be comfortable with the fact that, you know, intimacy was important, that I desired it. Partnership was something important, that it wasn't weakness. It wasn't a failure on my part as a woman, because a lot of the messages that I had gotten through, I would say the eighties and the early nineties was to be a powerful woman meant you didn't need anyone. You definitely didn't need a man. Men were the enemy. You did it on your own. And that was a period of power feminism, you know, that, <laughs> there were some great things and then there were things that needed to, to learn. So like any movement and like any individual, there's a journey and there's an evolution. I mean, if anybody looked at my rhetoric or my actions 15, 20, 25 years ago, they're very different than now. In the same way, if we look at collective movements, they also are a living organism. They breathe and grow and move. And so, you know, I just happened to come of age at a period of time where some of my interpretations of that rhetoric was, I have to become actually like the men who are the oppressors to be powerful. And then that paradigm shifted for me through my practice um, and through a lot of the work that I was reading on love as revolution, pleasure as an access to authentic non-hierarchical power. I usually try to end an episode leaving listeners with one or two practical um, applications that they can practice throughout the week while they're waiting on the next podcast. As I think about all that we've covered from um, Tantra to yoga to power, pleasure, body image, um, to me, it, it, I was going to ask you originally, you know, what is the first step to realizing your power? But as I heard you talk, I think I heard you actually already answer the question. And that first step sounds like recognizing you have the power and strength to take a break, to give yourself a break. Um, and so I'm wondering if you can just, for those people, for those women especially that are listening that are like, yes, this resonates deeply, I just don't know how. You know, what is something practical, a simple practice that they could do to begin to step into that first step of empowerment or pleasure or wherever they're at in their journey? Yeah, I mean, the most practical and simple and yet powerful thing for anyone, right, of any background is to come into stillness. I mean, that is where, I mean, you and I had a conversation, you know, earlier today about creating space for stillness, creating room, right? It's very difficult to get answers when we are so incredibly full that we're just slopping over, right? Or we're congested. And that is why actually meditation is so challenging to much of our culture because it requires us to stop and to listen. And when we fill our lives with busyness, you know, a lot of it, and I can speak for myself, is 
well, that's a great way to avoid, you know, the internal gremlins and, and whatever is rumbling around inside. Um, and so I would just encourage people, like it does not have to be anything fancy or complicated, but starting with two minutes of sitting in stillness and allowing the breath to be the focal point. That is how I started my meditation practice before I got into Vipassana, right? Which is to, to close our eyes if that feels comfortable. For some people, closing their eyes may feel vulnerable. So then they can narrow their gaze to a point in front of them, perhaps the tip of their nose, you know, soft eyes. Mm -hmm. And just feel the, the air coming through the nostrils, right? And filling the belly, the lungs, opening the ribs. So deep, full, intentional breathing and then exhaling completely and feeling the breath exit the nostrils. Mm. Having that sensation point is a great way to keep the mind focused on something. The breathing itself is going to have an impact on the nervous system. It's going to create room and spaciousness and quiet. And then eventually, if people want to add on, if you start with two minutes of that deep intentional breathing, I like to say then add on two minutes of soft breathing, right? Once you get into that, um, you know, when your nervous system gets a little more regulated and, you know, you kind of drop into the body, you land on the mat or the cushion or in the chair, however, you know, you're approaching this, um, and then just start to receive the breath, as my own Tantra teacher would say, just receive it. Go from pulling it in to receiving that breath. And then just go in to explore, like, Give yourself the permission to just listen and to accept whatever comes up without judgment. That is so profound and it is so challenging because people start to fidget. We're on our devices. We're having conversations. You know, ads are meeting our gaze no matter where our, our eyeballs land. So just taking two to five minutes, right? to kind of silence the cacophony that is greeting us everywhere else mm. and coming into that space is one of the most profound and subversive things that we can do. Mm. Excellent. Two minutes. I love it. Two minutes, right? As we said, make it something measurable, make it something attainable. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Full circle. Full circle. Yes. Thank you, Melanie, so much for being on today. Um, as soon as this is over, I'm going to email you to schedule the, the follow-up because there's so much more that we can talk about. Um, but I know, I know that the things you've shared, the stories you've shared are going to uh, really hit people and, and strike a chord in a lot of folks that listen to this podcast. So thank you. Well, it has been my pleasure. Thank you so much, Ben, for having one of the most elevated and complex podcasts out there. It is, <laughs> no, it's true. It is such a, a wonderful space for people to come in and bring together, you know, things that seem to be uh, disconnected and seeing how they all connect and beginning to make, you know, a new level of visibility to things that really need to be seen in a new way. Mm, wonderful. Thank you for that. Um, and, and as we go, if people want to learn more about you, purchase your book, get in touch with your work, where do they go? Um, they can go to Melanie C. Don't forget the C because Melanie Klein is also a psychologist from the early 1900s. Yes. But this is MelanieCKlein.com. And I'm also at MelMelKlein on Instagram and all over the internet. So check that out. All right. Thanks, Mel. Thank you for listening to episode 10 of the Invisible Truths podcast. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating so it's easier for others to find it. I also encourage you to follow Melanie Klein on Instagram and Facebook 
and check out the work she's doing with the Yoga and Body Image Coalition. If you're really into yoga, purchase her book, Yoga Rising. Yoga Rising contains 30 empowering stories from yoga renegades for every body type. So again, if you're into yoga and fascinated by the ways it can empower and inspire and unlock the potential of your body, check out Melanie's work and consider purchasing her book, Yoga Rising. There are links to Melanie's other initiatives, such as the Joy Revolution, in the episode description of this podcast. Once again, thanks for listening to episode 10 of Invisible Truths. Until next week, I'm Ben Tapper.